I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, the story of Bermuda and the Bermuda Sloop. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Godson. Thanks, Todd. Um, I hope you're doing well today. I'm doing great. So, Scott, what is the topic of today's episode? Uh, today, we're talking about Bermuda sloops. And it's a story about rigging. It's a story about discovery. And I think you might be startled by the fact of who created it who perpetuated and who built the Bermuda Sloop. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Thank you, Todd. Um, Title of this episode, of course, is uh, Bermuda Sloop. I wanted to, I mentioned last week that I was going to do a thing on Bermuda. Now, Bermuda for me has always been sort of a weird, transient place, and the discovery of it is really the discovery of the American Mariner. As a kid, uh, sailing my 21-foot Hersorf-designed sloop in Egg Harbor Bay, New Jersey, I dreamed of getting out into the ocean as the real test of seamanship and the real attainment of freedom. I would occasionally work my way down to Townsend's Inlet, which is at the bottom of the island that Ocean City, New Jersey sits on. I'd drop my mast and I'd slide under the bridge and out into the ocean. I could only accomplish this route if the tide was going out. My half-horsepower Johnson outboard wasn't strong enough to fight that sort of racing current. Once through the small cut out into the ocean, I say ocean, but in reality, there were miles and miles of shifting sandbars that made up a barrier to Townsend's Inlet Beach, and subsequently all the the beaches um, up and down the South Jersey coast. So I would sail straight out to sea about a mile. When the water changed to a deeper green and eventually a deep blue, which was about as far out as I wanted to go because I didn't have the confidence um, as a 15-year-old to venture further. But my geography lessons taught me that 650 miles east by southeast laid Bermuda. I would wistfully look into that direction and then turn north for about five miles and enter back into Egg Harbor Bay under the big bridge and back down into my little mooring behind the Ocean City Airport. That was a big day of sailing for me, but it was full of feeling that I had accomplished something. I've always wanted to go somewhere. I've raced, and I've enjoyed the competition, but my choice in terms of racing is ocean sailing. I like, you know, something tangible, like we're 
going to Argentina today and let's go, or we're going to cross the Atlantic, let's go, we're going to do the Indian Ocean or the Southern Ocean. That to me always seems somehow more worthwhile than going around inflated buoys. I get it. I know it's a race. It's a, it's, it's a competitive deal. But I'm just saying my preferences, I like that kind of racing. So I, I often floated the idea to my parents, kind of jokingly and serious at the same time. I said, I could sail to Bermuda and back in a month. And neither one of my parents was a sailor. Um, they gently dissuaded me from considering the ideas by, you know, kidding me and saying that's completely ludicrous. The absurdity was beyond the pale, and they just kept joking. And once they said to me, they said, you can go anywhere you want as long as you don't lose sight of land. I wasn't so committed to ocean sailing when I was 15. I trusted my boat. But it was a long way to go in open ocean, to go to Bermuda. A lot of miles. So the next summer, um, I sailed to Bar Harbor, Maine with my friends and sailing buddy, George. Um, The voyage, we kept the land in sight the whole way. It was our test. We had had shared the dream of going to Bermuda in the boat. And, um, you know, the... The mileage from Ocean City, New Jersey to Bar Harbor, Maine is about 650 nautical miles. And it was about the same, it's about the same distance to Bermuda. So, but I want to stop that part of the story because it's really a different story altogether. We made it to Bar Harbor. Um, You know, our true purpose was uh, the half-assed notion that the uh, Stratatelli sisters would be interested in seeing us over the summer. Uh, They weren't, and they considered us both insane. We accepted the condemnation and sailed home. I never did sail my little 21-foot sloop to Bermuda. Uh, Life took me in many directions after that summer. But Bermuda, in a weird way, always seemed like a noble and interesting destination. And it wasn't until years later that I was delivering a sailboat from New York to St. Thomas that I made my first acquaintance with Bermuda. Subsequently, I've sailed to Bermuda, specifically St. George's, five times in all. And it was always a layover and going somewhere. Um, The ultimate destination was either the Caribbean, and once, because of weather, I went into Bermuda before and then continued crossing the Atlantic Ocean from Bermuda one of the routes that you can take. So as some of you know, besides producing this podcast, um, I'm a produced screenwriter with many movies under my belt and a television producer. I'm developing two series now. Um, Offshore Explorer with Scott Dodson is an international show that travels around the world visiting ports and exploring the influences of the mariner and culture and history and connecting the dots and food and and art and all these really good things it's a very fascinating show but because of covid we weren't able to travel so that series was sort of put on hold hopefully we can start it next year 
In the meantime, I developed another series, and this is one that we are actually moving forward on, and it's called The American Mariner. We're really excited about this series and, and have actually begun doing some filming and a lot of the writing and the pre-production that goes into it. While I'm developing this series, of course, I can't forget about the environment that I'm living in because it's influencing me in a lot of different ways and how I see things. Um, you know, we have a series going, but, you know, right now we have Black Lives Matter protests going on across the country. And my wife, uh, Paulette McWilliams, who is black and an internationally renowned jazz singer, and I have, we've participated in, supported wholeheartedly and economically, the movement. So the other day she asked me, she said, why is sailing so white? That's a good question, I think. This led me to examine some of the myth and the culture around sailing or quote-unquote yachting. You know, yacht clubs are kind of all... Um, exclusive. And there's a lot of sailors that are never, ever going to join a yacht club. And I've always been one of them. I actually was a member of the Monaco Yacht Club, but not by my own volition. I was, I was given a membership by the fact that I was driving a big boat for an owner who had been a longtime member. And it was graded somehow, captain's membership to the Monaco Boat Club. And we used to have to get dressed up to go in there and eat dinner. And the dinner was okay wasn't great. So I get back to this idea of, of what this myth of the American captain is. So the American captain has always been seen as this fearless white sailor from New England. And this myth was perpetuated by the dominance of New England literature in the 17th and 18th century. Joshua Slocum, Herman Melville, uh, even Joseph Conrad, who was English, um, their their works all contributed to this this myth, and there was a vast amount of English stories. Um, anybody that reads the Captain Jack Aubrey series knows that there were a lot of writers, and the captains wrote all of their um, memoirs, and all of this stuff was some fascinating and and brilliant reading. And, and it, was, it was a lot of fun. But what it did is, is it perpetuated a certain kind of myth and a very, very specific kind of character. They were all noble and brave and fearless. They dominated Mother Nature. And the ship, you know, the ship, they were the captain of the ship. Of course, in Herman Melville and Moby Dick and in Joseph Conrad, The Heart of Darkness, the white captain is suffering to a certain extent. He's flawed. He has difficulties psychologically. Now, what's interesting about that is, is one does not write a novel kind of diffusing a myth or letting the air out of a myth on these grand characters, these grand American and British yacht captains, sailing Navy captains, unless that character has been firmly established in, a, in an almost iconic way, because otherwise it doesn't work at all. It's just like, okay, there's a bunch of muddleheads sailing around in really expensive boats and doing bizarre things like attacking cities and, 
and raiding other ships and all the rest of this kind of stuff. So it supports the idea that this myth existed because really in America, if you, if you look around, okay, the, the captain, the New England captain was, was sort of the superstar, okay? He, he captured uh, the uh, frontier myth. And with so many people coming to America, you know, by ship, okay, they, they, they had become in touch with a captain to a certain degree. So all of this sort of added up to being this sort of big life, bigger than life character. But if you actually look in, at history, you'll see that the people who wore the moniker of captain or ship captain came from a lot of different places and were a lot of different people. Black, Spanish, French, Russian, Portuguese, English, Indian, just to name a few. Spanish were huge. There were Spanish captains everywhere, in the South and on the West Coast. Russians had forts in San Fr outside of San Francisco. Fort Ross, I think it is. You also had Filipino captains. Tons of people migrated from Phil Philippines to the United States in the 18th century. You had Japanese, Chinese, all captains all with their own stories, all with their own myths and outlooks on the world. So the American Mariner is not just one white guy from New England. It's a lot of different people. It's a lot of different diversity. And where some of this begins is with the ship design. We're all familiar with the Bermuda Sloop. In fact, almost... Every single one of the people that own boats out here probably have a Bermuda rig. It's sometimes called a Marconi rig, but not because the radio pioneer had anything to do with the design, but because the masts were so tall on the J-class boats that they, they look like radio towers. So they called it a Marconi rig, which I think, I think in a way they were kind of dissing the Bermudans at that particular point. And um, because there's a lot of racial uh, skullduggery going on. So the Bermuda Sloop, it's a historical type of fore and aft rigged single-masted sailing vessel developed in Bermuda in the 17th century. They originally had a gaff rig with uh, quadrilateral sails um, but they, they evolved into the what they call the Bermuda rig with triangular sails. Although the Bermuda sloop is often described as the development of a narrow-beamed Jamaican sloop, which dates from the 1670s, the high-raked masts and triangular sails of the Bermuda rig are rooted in a traditional uh, Bermudan boat design dating from the earliest decades of the 17th century. It's distinguished from other vessels with the triangular uh, Bermuda rig, uh, which have multiple masts and may not have evolved in the hull form from the traditional designs. The rig consists of a triangular sail aft and a mast with a head with its head raised to the top of the mast. 
its luff runs down the mast and is normally attached to it for its length, it, its tack is attached to the base of the mast. Its foot in the modern versions of the rig are controlled by the boom and its clue is attached to the aft end of the boom, which is to and it's controlled by a sheet. That's kind of my rough description of what it actually looks like. But the Bermuda vessels, Bermudian vessels, were um, really developed to be in the waters outside of Bermuda, which is a lot of shallow waters and reefs and and stuff like that. So they were used both for fishing and for moving um, goods back and forth across the island. And then later they developed this uh, mainsail, mainmast, um, and jib configuration, and they built a deeper, deeper boat, and it became an ocean-going vessel. And, and it was basically, most notably, a schooner with a Bermuda rig. Now, in some configurations, the Bermuda-fitted dinghy also had like this vast kind of sail area, and it did the same thing. So the, your little dinghy racers, your schooners, your J-Class, all of these are Bermuda rig boats. So the Bermuda rig boat, and it's interesting the development of this because the boat could go into the wind extremely well, as opposed to the dominant vessels at the time, which were square riggers. The square riggers couldn't go close to the wind. So a Bermuda rig ship could attack a larger vessel. And then if they felt they, like they were losing, they could just turn and go closer to the wind and, and get away. And so there was a great deal of privateers out of Bermuda. And Bermuda as an island, you know, it's, if you don't know exactly where it is in the world, and I know I have a lot of people from all over the world listening, it's about 650 miles off the coast of North Carolina in the Atlantic Ocean. It's a semi-tropical island. Um, it's warm. A lot of hurricanes go right over it. It's in the middle of everything, and it's sort of the center of the Atlantic shipping traffic area. It made a perfect place for, um, it, for the British Navy to, to refuel and to you know get wood and water and food, and it, it was within striking distance, especially when the Revolutionary War was going on and especially in the War of 1812. Very important place. It's still British today. It's a, it's a Commonwealth country. So among this rig, Bermuda Sloop rig vessel, uh, it began with, they developed what they call a spinnaker, with a spinnaker boom, and they had additional jibs, and all the main controls for the vessel all were run back to the cockpit area. This was a very sleek, interesting, and dynamic development in sailing technology. Let's talk a little bit about Bermuda, per se. Because I think it's really important, the development of this, this boat in design 
and it was lightweight. Um, the Bermuda made their vessels out of cedar, which was plentiful on the island. And it was widely prized for its uh, agility, its speed, especially going upwind. With these really high raked masts and long bowsprits and booms um, could just put out vast areas of sail, um, they could also run downwind with a spinnaker and multiple chips. And, and the speeds were ridiculous at the time. I mean, 11, 12, 15 knots. I mean, the fastest thing going at that time was a horse racing, you know, which is about 12, 12 to 20 miles an hour, but only for a short burst. But being able to go 15 or 20 knots literally for days with the right wind was a speed phenomenon. It was just like, whoa, jet engine, break the sound barrier, go more than 20 miles an hour. Unbelievable. You know, you could feel the, 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 the wind in your hair when they talk about it. So what happened was the Bermuda started to build mostly sloops. Um, they were moving freight, they were moving people and about everything else. And then it was essentially adopted as the main Bermuda design. The Marconi rig was first applied to the tall Bermuda rig used on large racing yachts, such as the J-Class, used since 1914 for the America Cup international races. And it has many cables that support its height. And to observers, it reminded them of Marconi's mast of wireless antennas. And he was actually doing a thing in New York in 1899 when the America's Cup was going on and it became interchangeable. So the commercial success of the soup has to be credited to the contribution of Bermuda's free and enslaved blacks. For the most of the 17th century, Bermuda's agricultural economy was reliant on indentured servants. Now, I'm going to take a quick aside that, you know, my great-grandfather uh, came from Wales, and he was, uh, his parents had passed away, and he was in an orphanage. And he was adopted and brought to America by a Dutch family. And he was technically an indentured servant until he actually reached the age of 21, um, in which he had actually worked his way out because they brought him to work him in the coal mines. And as he worked in the coal mines, he would give all their money to the family. And it's this very cruel kind of way. But for the most part, a lot of people ended up being indentured servants. And um, you could buy your way out of it. You could earn your way out of it. And it took time. And they were different from slaves who once they were slaves, they were never going to stop being slaves. Um, so most, mostly it was during this period of, of the, uh, for most of the 17th century. So slavery didn't pay the same as being an indentured servant. So what happened was Bermuda had a lot of privateers, okay? And, and they often brought enslaved blacks Native Americans who had been captured along with the ships from enemy nations. The first 
large influx of blacks was of free men who came as indentured servants in the middle of the century from former Spanish colonies in the West Indies. The increasing numbers of of blacks, Spanish-speaking, probably Catholics, alarmed um, the white Protestant majority, also Native Irish that were sent to Bermuda to be sold into servitude. Um, And a lot of measures were taken to discourage black immigration and to ban um, the importation of Irish. And after 1684, Bermuda turned wholesale to the maritime economy and the slaves, black, American, Irish, and a variety of other minorities, created what they called a single demographic group called colored. That's anyone who was not identified as entirely European extraction. But it played a a big role because black Bermudans became highly skilled shipwrights, blacksmiths, and joiners. And many of the shipwrights who helped develop the shipbuilding of the American South, especially on the Virginia shore and on the Chesapeake, were from Bermuda. They maintained very close connections. So the black Bermudan, the slaves, and were designing and creating the area's schooners. And many of them never got any credit for this. But the entire American boat building world was being, was being manufactured by black Bermudans. And in, in fact, at the time of the American Revolution, there were over a thousand Bermuda sloops that were built by blacks in Virginia and Bermuda and further south in the Chesapeake that helped the Americans win the war against the British. So as the War of American Independence continued, a lot of the Bermudans said, hey, wait a minute, you know, we take all the white guys, we put them all on one boat, and we go off, and we're privateers, and that leaves all the black guys at home with our wives. Honestly, this is their thinking. I'm, I'm not making this up. So what they did is the Bermudan merchant fleet needed and got a rule that half the cr- crowd, half the crew had to be black. So what happened is you got a lot of very skilled black sailors. And in fact, um, the regulator, the Americans captured the Bermuda privateer, the regulator, and they discovered that virtually all her crew were black slaves. Authorities in Boston offered these men their freedom, but nearly all of the 70 captives elected to be treated as prisoners of war, claiming slavery was all they knew, and out of fear for their families who were still in Bermuda, They were sent to New York on the sloop Duxbury, which they seized and then sailed back to Bermuda. I don't know about that story so much. Like, okay, yeah, we're cool with being slaves. I don't think that, I think this is a retelling story. I think this is just a, oh yeah, it's a, it's a good story to tell because, you know, you know, black slaves ought to feel, you know, like they should stay, like it's a good life. I don't buy that at all. So about the mid-17th century, free blacks, mostly Spanish-speaking Catholics, who chose to immigrate, um, 
started to get involved in the empire. So there were there were a lot of costs in transportation for servants, and there was a lot of reliance on indentured servitude. And then finally, the British gave the whole thing up. They stopped slavery in the 17th century, and but you still had a lot of black and Native American slaves continue to trickle into Bermuda. But Bermuda had changed by now. Bermuda was was becoming a society that had a lot of ethically cleansed people from homelands, right, where the British were dumping, were capturing people like Algonquin people from New England, the Picotes, um, Native Irish, um, and all the rest of them were being sent to Bermuda because they, you know, the British would conquer. That's where they would go. Well, once this all stopped, the island of became about 54% black. And they changed from just calling people black to sometimes African Bermudan. They used the word colored, which was anybody that had any kind of mix of different color. And, and that included, by the way, the Irish, as well as the Portuguese, which were separate they're about ten percent of the population, and they were they were a, a, a separate category. So now today, Bermuda is fifty four percent black, but more importantly, and this is getting back to my story, is that there's a real untold story about these highly skilled craftsmen who built these beautiful boats, which design wise have endured for centuries and all the racing boats all the j-class boats and and all the wooden boats that we've built with these large rigs and all the rest of that stuff all pretty much were developed by free slaves and black indentured slaves so when we start talking about the american mariner and we look at say the navy crews from independence of America to say the war of 1812 take the crew of the Constitution a greater percentage of it was people of mixed origins of color and these people developed into very highly skilled mariners and this is the American Mariner so when I finally got around to coming into Bermuda on my own I was sailing from New York City on this 42-foot McGregor, I think it was. And when you come into St. George's, there's there's this light out there um, to kind of mark the channel to get in because it's a lot of reefs all the way around the island. And one of the great things is uh, Bermuda Maritime. They'll answer on Channel 16. You can hail them. They will probably hail you first because they can see you. And that they're the ones, they're, they're traffic control, basically. And many of your nets, um, your sailing nets on SSB radio um, are, you know, keep an eye on you. Southbound is there, although I think Southbound may have moved up to Maine or something. And there's a number of other nets, which you can all find on Latitude um, 38. I, I put up a, a, a link for that. So... When you come in, 
and you're going along, you can see almost, I always seem to come in at night for some reason, but you can just see the water as a glow, you know, with lots of phosphorus. It's very rich in life. And you come down and then you see this, what they call the cut. And the cut is, you know, between two islands. And you think, this is really small. Um, and there's trees. And, you know, after you've been at sea for a while, suddenly you smell like um, cedar and pine. And it's like your senses are just like... And it's very deep. Um, cruise ships go through this cut. No big deal. But when you're coming in for the first time, it does look a little bit uh, a little bit daunting. So once you get inside... Um, you could look over to your starboard side and you can see where um, the customs house is, the customs dock. And that's the first place you go. I would advise being careful not to, there's buoys for um, that you, that are out there as part of the anchorage. Um, be careful not to run one over. Um, I, they're very hard to see at night, but they're there. Uh, if you're aware of them, you can put a lookout on your bow. And you go and, you know, customs won't be open in the middle of the night, but, you know, they'll know you're there. And I always had, remember, you know, putting the boat there and, and on the customs dock. And then at like 630 in the morning, you know, we just went to sleep like, you know, 10 minutes before. And there's a knock on the hull and you have to get up and kind of do your whole thing. And then they direct you where they want you to anchor inside and how long you're going to be and what kind of equipment and clear you in. And to be quite honest, everybody in the maritime community there is just lovely. It is just, it's, it's a great place. They know how to treat people. They're all about safety. They're all about finding the right stuff. And this goes back to this idea that these, this island and the people that, that developed this island and grew up on this island um, have a lot more going for them in terms of the history. I mean, it's become a bit of a tourist trap, to be quite honest, Bermuda, the way it's developed. A lot of cruise ships, you know, a lot of hotels, a lot of golf courses, and it's the industry. It's, they don't build boats there anymore, um, but it's the industry of what's there. They do some fishing. That's about it, okay? Um, but the history is what they're selling there. And a lot of times they sell the history of the pirates. And they really shouldn't do that. I mean, it's great the pirate thing goes on. And if you like to fly your pirate flag, just know that if you flew a pirate flag in, say, France, and one of the gendarmes happened to see that, they would take it very seriously and arrest you for being a pirate because it's still a big deal in some countries. You know, Americans, we all think it's, yeah, whatever, we're having a party, we're all pirates, har, har, har. No, it's taken seriously in the rest of the world. And I don't know, it just sort of, it's one of those little things that gets me. You know, you fly your flag, your flag is your flag, right? And a pirate is not a good, good person. But as I said before in the previous podcast, um, pirates are bad dudes. Smugglers are, you know, cool people. So anyway, this is the Bermuda. Now, a lot of times when I came into Bermuda, the, almost every time I came into Bermuda, you always want to get a real nice meal. So I always went over to the White Horse Cafe, which is just a few steps from the dock and had, um, you know, it's a good bar fare and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It's a great place to drink. 
And anybody that's been there, you know, knows it's a terrific place. It's been there forever. And it's really, really a nice place to relax and kind of, you know, swap tails with other sailors. Now, there is a sort of interesting thing that I wanted to bring up about this, where Bermuda is, and something that as a, a child I thought about, which was, not a child, but, you know, as a teenager, wanting to sail to Bermuda and then turn around and sail back. That's very much a possibility. You can do, you can do that. If, if you're, let's say your boat or your marina is anywhere from, say, North Carolina north, okay, you could sail over to Bermuda. You know, it's 600 miles roughly, maybe 700 miles if you're further north. Um, you know, it's a good sail. Um, but if you got a 100-mile-a-day, 24-hour boat, you know, you get there in five or six days. Then you can stay there for a couple of weeks, enjoy it, play a little golf, do whatever you want, then turn around and come back to to the... Uh, to the East Coast. Or as a lot of people do, they move out of the Northeast, they stop at Bermuda, and then they continue. And the other leg, which is to go to the Caribbean from there, which I've advised in the past, if you're, if you go down the intercoastal, down to Florida, and then want to go to the Caribbean from there, you're going to have to beat into some very difficult seas, especially the Mona Passage. And it's just not fun doing that part of the lake. You may have had a great time getting there, but it's still not fun. So I like the idea, six-day, five, six-day sail, Bermuda, get some history, realize that your boat that you're sailing was developed on this very little island, and it was built by people who were slaves, who became free, and who were master craftsmen, and who essentially founded the American boat-building world. It's a fascinating story. So that's Bermuda and the Bermuda Sloop. Thank you. Oh, Scott, that's a great story. I'm assuming you've been to Bermuda so many times, you probably know it by the back of your hand. Well, actually, I've been there five times. Yeah. Um, yeah, two uh, two round trip tickets, uh, four stops there, and then once I stopped on the way uh, from the Caribbean to Europe, um, there is a possibility of doing that. Uh, but I I did that because of a weather storm, and um, so I just had to alter my path and hit up to Bermuda. But, you know, Bermuda is a, is a very interesting sort of maritime, nautical place. And I've always regretted not spending more time there. Um, it's very touristy, and they have a lot of, you know, cruise ships and tourists and golf courses and all the rest of that stuff. And I get that. That's how islands make money. But there's, there's just something about, you know, standing out there in the wild with the cedars and the boat builders and, and the wind and the being in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And it's, it's just something wildly maritime and romantic. It sounds like it's a, an easy trip um, for a beginning sailor, like if they want to do their first open ocean voyage. 
that might be a good option for them if they're on the East Coast. Yeah, it is. I, I, I actually recommend that because I think people make the mistake, and I think it is a mistake in my opinion, to go down the intercoastal waterway down to Florida. Um, and it's great fun. It's good sailing. It's a, you know, it's a lot of, you know, this, that, and other thing, but you end up having to go from Florida, um, across the, across the, uh, Gulf of, uh, Mexico and the Gulf stream and trying to get to the Bahamas. And then from the Bahamas, you have to cross over into Hispaniola through the Mona passage, which is just some of the worst sea ever. And you really, you're beating into it the whole time. And it makes for a very, very long trip. Um, I like the idea of, of doing the 650 miles from the, co- from the U.S. to Bermuda, open water, um, lots of shipping, nothing to be afraid of, um, pretty easy to do, um, you know, picking the right weather picture going there, settling in. And then, then the last is another 650 buck, uh, miles to get down to uh, the Caribbean. Um, it's, it's actually quite a, 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 an easy sail. I mean, the worst part, if there is a worst part, is actually crossing over the Gulf Stream, you know, which could be 40, 50 miles wide, depending where you cross. And, but outside of that, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a worthwhile trip and, and it gives you a lot of confidence to do it. Yeah. And is there any truth to the whole Bermuda triangle? I, I feel like I have to ask that, right? Cause there's so many myths surrounding it. I, you know, it, I, I don't know. I never, uh, you know what? It's just a piece of water as far as I'm concerned. And I don't let myself be bothered by stuff like that. I just go. Yeah. Uh, and, and lastly, if if it's somebody's first time going to Bermuda and sailing out there, what would you recommend that they do while they're there? What they what they should see? Well, uh, there's there's you know you can play a lot of golf. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the little the little town of St. George's is pretty nice. Um, they have a couple of nautical museums there. There's a couple of research stations. I don't know if you can get into those. You used to be able to go to, uh, they had a NOAA center, and mm-hmm. you could go there, and, and they, have, they would show you around because they track all, all the storms and stuff from there. I don't even know if it's open anymore. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's a, you know, a number of places. I know I, I always seem to end up in the White Horse Bar, Mm-hmm. which is uh, very close to the key where we anchor and and or tie up the boat and um you know late night drinks and hamburgers and stuff like that it's good bar fare but yeah you know. i imagine i imagine there's a lot of great rum down there yeah it's funny but they don't they're not a sugarcane island oh, they've really? never been a sugarcane no mm-mm. Oh. nope so what uh, so what is the drink of choice in bermuda uh, it's rum, rum. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, it's imported and, um, it's rum and it's gin. It's very English, by the way, it's very English. And yes, they have Bermuda shorts. A lot of the people in the government and, and, you know, business people in Hamilton, you'll see them wearing Bermuda shorts and high socks. That's kind of entertaining. Um, what else is there? Um, just a lot of beautiful reefs and, and, 
wildness. There's Bermuda is actually, I think there's over a hundred islands in Bermuda. So, uh, there's a lot to see. There's wow. a lot to do as far as that's concerned. Wow. Uh, amazing. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, I've been thinking about this one and I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of research on, uh, as I mentioned in the, the notes, I'm doing research and developing a new show, uh, kind of on the same subject matter of the, of a mariner and, and what we see and our experiences. But I think something's been kind of bugging me that I've sort of missed in the first 20 episodes and really possibly my main motivation for sailing. And um, that's to find love and have sex. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Manu Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.